0: Welcome to Mayo Clinic's ECG segment, Making Waves, Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us every other week for a lively discussion on the latest and greatest in the field of electrocardiography. We'll discuss some of the exciting and innovative work happening at Mayo Clinic and beyond with the most brilliant minds in the space and provide valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Welcome to Mayo Clinic's ECG segment, Making Waves. We're so glad you could join us. Today, we have an exciting episode planned for you as we discuss computerized ECG detection of left ventricular hypertrophy. We have an expert discussing joining us who will help us better understand this topic. Left ventricular hypertrophy represents pathological thickening of the left ventricle. Recognition of left ventricular hypertrophy is important because of its adverse clinical outcomes if left untreated and the availability of therapies to reverse it if detected early enough. Numerous ECG criteria for left ventricular hypertrophy have been proposed over the years and computerized electrocardiography provides a means to alert clinicians to such findings. In this episode, we will focus on computerized ECG detection of left ventricular hypertrophy, including updates made over the years, the process of identifying which criteria to use, and the clinical relevance as it relates to risk prediction. We're fortunate to have a recognized industry expert in the field of computerized ECG analysis, Dr. Bob Farrell, to discuss further. Dr. Farrell is a principal engineer in the Diagnostic Cardiology Algorithms Group at GE Healthcare based in Wisconsin. Dr. Farrell earned a Bachelor of Science degree in Electrical and Electronics Engineering from North Dakota State University and a Ph.D. in Bioengineering from the University of Utah. He got his start in signal processing, pattern recognition methods, and algorithm development for physiological signals while completing his PhD dissertation on a neural network-based alarm system for an anesthesiology machine in the early 1990s. Dr. Farrell started at what was then Marquette Electronics in 1996 and developed pulse oximetry and invasive blood pressure algorithms for patient monitors. In the meantime, GE bought Marquette in 1998, which is how he became and came to work at GE. In 2001, he was transferred to the diagnostic cardiology business in GE Healthcare, and he has not looked back. Dr. Farrell has spent most of his career advancing the GE12SL resting ECG analysis program, bringing several innovations and clinical enhancements to it along the way, including improved P-wave detection and rhythm analysis, the hookup advisory feature to provide real-time signal quality feedback to technicians while acquiring the ECG, identification of right ventricular involvement in the presence of acute myocardial inferior infarct, a revamp of how paced ECGs were interpreted, detection of Brugada pattern, and a revamp of how left ventricular hypertrophy is interpreted. And that's going to be our focus today. In addition to his many years of working on the 12 sl resting ECG analysis program, Dr. Farrell has had a hand in several additional aspects of ECG analysis, including stress testing and ambulatory recordings. He's currently a member of the Board of Directors of the International Society of Computerized Electrocardiology. Dr. Farrell, what a true honor to have you with us today. Thank you for joining.
1: Yeah, thank you, Dr. Taschow. It's uh, very exciting to be here. Appreciate the opportunity
0: we've been really looking forward to this. And because the focus is going to be around left ventricular hypertrophy, I thought maybe it's a good idea we start discussing the relevance as it relates to the ECG and LVH or left ventricular hypertrophy. There's so many modalities now available to us as clinicians, the echo, the cardiac MRI, uh, and all that's evolving and how we use them. How do you see the ECG remaining relevant to our discussion of left ventricular hypertrophy?
1: Yeah well uh I think the ECG is is still very relevant for the analysis of of LVH for for multiple reasons. Uh first whether or not you believe that there is utility in diagnosing LVH from the ECG you still need to take LVH into account when you're reading the ECG and that goes for human overreaders as well as computerized uh interpretation programs like our GE program. You you have to be able to Acknowledge whether or not there's LVH when you're looking at old infarcts, and especially when uh, there's the, the so-called strain pattern and how that plays into ST elevation or depression changes. And is that ST depression you see, is that related to a strain pattern or is it due to to ischemia? There's there's that, also the accessibility of the ECG test. It's, it's ubiquitous, it's, it's all over. So ECGs are ordered for all kinds of reasons. And you essentially get a potential LVH interpretation for free out of that ECG test. And then a good amount of research that has shown that LVH by ECG is associated with poorer outcomes in its own right, independent from other modalities, such as ECHO.
0: Mm -hmm. And so you could see this, uh, and this is, I think, the repeated pattern of the ECG still remaining relevant, non-invasive, ubiquitous, as you mentioned, a really relatively inexpensive test that's still available to us that could potentially be used as that screening marker for an important clinical finding. You know, over the years, GE's made some updates to the 12SL program related to LVH. Uh, What drove those changes uh, you made?
1: We uh, started looking into the into the LBH uh, largely based on customer feedback, and we were getting uh, over the years. We had feedback from customers that they they didn't understand our criteria that it was opaque. Why did you call LBH on this? Why didn't you call LBH on this? You know, although we had disclosed what our criteria was in our positions guide, you know we we know that that seldom ever gets read, even though we put a lot of work into it. So there was that feedback about kind of the opaqueness of it, and also uh, sometimes we would confuse LBH strain with other T-wave abnormalities. And then separate from all of that were uh, recommendations that were uh, published uh, jointly published by ACC, AHA, and Heart Rhythm Society. Uh, recommendations to guideline uh, to manufacturers. It was a series of six papers published published simultaneously in both Circulation and JACC. Uh, between 2007 2009 and two of those series of six papers were relevant to this discussion one was a standardized statement list for any statement that you'd want to make on a, on, on an ECG and then an- another part specifically part five was devoted to chamber hypertrophy and so they had some recommendations that we we took to heart so we, we cracked open the box and everything was on the table do we want to create new statements? Do we want to have new criteria? Those are kind of the, the two parts of it. You know, how are we going to detect it? What are we going to say about it? And so we were a, an open book, I should say in blank slate. Separate from the customer feedback, or maybe kind of tangential to it, we kind of had our own sentiment about maybe we we overcall it on healthy people, especially young adults. And it was interesting talking to doctors about, you know, how is it, how important is that? that uh, we overcall, or even if we just call LBH, what's the significance of, of us calling LVH? Some doctors were, were very cognizant of the impact on a person's ability to get life insurance and would be reluctant to put LVH on an interpretation, but I would talk to other cardiologists that said, no, that doesn't influence my decision at all. That's not clinically related. I'm gonna I'm gonna call it as I see it. So it was interesting to get to two different perspectives. Also, a sentiment that we we undercall it in hypertensive populations. We crack, like I said, we cracked open the box, everything was on the table. We took the the ha recommendations to heart, but they they weren't all completely workable. We didn't think. There were some things that, with all due respect to the people that wrote them, and I and I know some of them. They're in the trenches reading ECGs. We're kind of in our trenches, trying to make something that works for everybody. So we we needed to strike a balance there. We had a series of medical advisory board meetings. One of the authors, the co-authors of one of those papers, was in our medical advisory board meeting, and and they acknowledged, okay, yeah, you don't have to take all this literally, um, which was very liberating to us. In the end, we we made we made some very specific changes, which were that rather than doing our criteria that we had forever since since 12SL was first written, which by the way was, it was kind of like Sokolo Lion, but it wasn't quite. It was kind of like Romhild Estes, but it wasn't quite. So we implemented the criteria as published in the literature. So we took, uh, we settled on four. Uh, the first one being the R amplitude in LEAD AVL, pretty standard, uh, 1,100 microvolts. The next one, uh, SOCLO Lion, uh, greater than 3,500 microvolts. Again, pretty standard. By the way, just as a side comment, some people may know, some people may not. But the R in AVL is technically part of SOCLO Lion. It was part of the original 1949 paper where they published both of those things. But typically, when people think of SOCLO Lion, they think of SV1 plus the max of R in V5 or V6, uh, greater than 3,500. So... So that's two, RNAVL, then the classic or typical Soklo line, and then Cornell product, uh, and then finally, Hildestes. I mentioned them in that order, I spe- or specifically that Hildestes is fourth, because we consider the other three to be what we call voltage-only criteria. And our statement hierarchy, which, by the way, we kept our existing statements, and like I said, it's four statements. We were concerned that it's too much, but on the input of our medical advisory board, they said, no, no, keep those, just change the criteria. So we've got a statement that says minimal voltage criteria for LVH, moderate voltage criteria for LVH, voltage criteria for LVH, and then finally the fourth one is just plain LVH, you know, kind of what we call the the full-blown LVH. And by the way, the first two also had appended to it, comma, consider left ventricular hypertrophy. So we had that kind of cascading or tiered uh, set of statements. Now with our four criteria, If any one of those is positive, we'll say the minimal voltage criteria statement. If any two are positive, we'll say moderate voltage criteria. If any three are positive, we'll say voltage criteria. If Romhild Estes is positive or there's QRS widening or repolarization abnormality, the so-called strain pattern, then we will say the full-blown LVH statement. I think it's, it's pretty powerful the way we're doing it now. So we still have kind of the hierarchical statements that we had before. Uh, They're the same statements, just the criteria is different. And importantly, and also in the spirit and and actually strictly following the recommendations to manufacturers, is that we list the criteria that are positive. So if you're positive for RNAVL, we say that right in there uh, parenthetically. Same with Sokol, Lion, Cornell product, um, Hildaste. So we'll put all of those right in the interpretation now. One of the other things that we did was to really look into the strain pattern. We we had some pretty naive criteria, some very simplified criteria for whether or not we would call it repolarization abnormality or not. And by the way, I'm, I'm using those terms interchangeably because strain pattern just rolls off the tongue quicker than repolarization abnormality. We didn't do such a good job at that. I'm pretty confident that we're much, much better now. So we did a lot of work in that area as well.
0: You know, uh, Bob, it's really interesting just to see, you know, and you've already answered a lot of the things that – it was, I was thinking of asking, but, you know, thinking how it started with the customers giving you feedback and just now providing a level of transparency with the criteria you offer. And then some of the recommendations uh, suggested by the ACC and AHA and and some of those guideline uh, advisory committees. It's amazing. I certainly don't envy the position that you guys were in because uh, there's a lot, right? And, And when you look at the literature, especially on this topic, there are dozens of criteria proposed on this, especially in the ECG.
1: Yeah.
0: And you, you wonder, I was wondering, how do you select those? You know, you mentioned the Sokola Lion, the, the two that come from that, um, the Cornell product, the Romehilt Estes. Is there a selection process? How do you, you know, select those four? In I guess now you do also provide that statement that says that, you know, it's this one that is met. Mm-hmm. Is there anything there? in how do you make that selection process?
1: It it wasn't probably as scientific as as maybe <laughs> you're asking for, but it was really knowing kind of what uh, I, I talked to a lot of different cardiologists about what do you use in, in your mind when you're reading an ECG, what do you use? Sokolo Lion was probably the the most common response to that. Rom kind of, I don't think most people knew all the criteria of Rom but when you read an ECG, it's all very, you know, if you know what you're looking for. You know they maybe didn't know that it's three points for this or two points for this point but they take those factors into account you know like left axis deviation you know it's there it's only one point you know the voltage criteria for that i mean that's three points and then and then you look at things like the intrinsicoid deflection which is you know how where's the peak of the R wave in V5 and V6. Well nobody measures that but guess what computerized programs can do it pretty well and so when you have that delayed intrinsicoid deflection you know, that, that's actually part of Hill Estes, even though they didn't necessarily know that they were using it or doing it strictly by math, adding up the points, they were using parts of it. So to me, it made a lot of sense. Plus, there was just so much written about Hill Estes as well sure. that it certainly proved its metal. The other one was Cornell product. Uh, it didn't have quite the the lifespan so far as Sokolowian or Hill Estes. But uh, there's been a lot of a lot of good work that came out of that group uh, at New York Presbyterian. Also, we've we've had a very long-standing relationship with with that hospital, so we knew Peter Oaken and, and Paul Klingfield pretty well, who authored a lot of that work. So it was very easy to, to work with them to make sure we were doing it right. And you know, hey, by the way, just want to make sure this is the right cut point to use. And you said this and this. Paper, but you said this in this paper. Which way should we go? And so it was very helpful to work with them directly and, and implement it and make sure that we did it right.
0: It, it really does make sense. Maybe that's the the best logical way, given you know not how only are how many, but you're also being transparent with the approach. So I think that's as a clinician what you want is like how did you give this diagnosis of voltage criteria or LVH based on this in the Cornell product, I I mean, there's some of these I don't even remember because there's so many cutoffs. I think the Cornell is even sex-specific, you know, based on male and female. I think 20 and 28 is that cutoff. AV, I think it's V3, the S-wave, and then the, you know, the R-wave and AVL. I'd have to even look it up. But as you can see, I don't remember (laughs) all these. And having that, uh, which the computer is good at, and I I think we have to give credit where credit's due, is the the computer's very good at at measurements, whether it's uh, rate control, You know, if we learn how to use the computer, just like now how we use other computer software, it can play to our advantage clinically. Now, the the one thing I did want to talk about is the ECG-LVH, the left ventricular hypertrophy you know, and how that you mentioned related to outcomes. Can you talk a little bit about ECG, LVH, and the risk prediction, and how the changes you've made, you know, over the years to the GE12SL program have aided in risk prediction?
1: There's been some really good studies that have been published in the last few years uh, that, well, uh, there's a lot of studies that, that have talked about individual LBH criteria, you know, wh- whether it's romm hild whether it was Cornell voltage. And by the way, uh, I forgot to mention earlier, so there's two criteria that came out of the, the Cornell group, Cornell voltage and Cornell product. Cornell voltage came out first, I think that was like in the 80s, and then Cornell product came out in the 90s. Cornell product takes the Cornell voltage and then multiplies it the times the QRS duration, and that's where you get the area from. And I say Cornell product for short, but it, but the, the long verbose name of it is, is Cornell voltage QRS duration product. So you're multiplying the Cornell voltage times the QRS duration, and you get units of microvolt milliseconds. So there's been papers published on outcomes with Cornell voltage and then Cornell product. And you named the criteria, and somebody studied outcomes. Not so common are showing the power of combining criteria. So there, there were some studies that combined Cornell product with uh Soklo-Lion for uh, heart failure uh, in patients with aortic stenosis and for MI, stroke or cardiovascular death and hypertensive patients. Those were two different uh, papers that I just mentioned. In almost all of those cases, the hazard ratio for the com- combined, if you're positive for both of those, is double to triple what the hazard ratio is for those adverse outcomes of either one alone. So that's pretty powerful, and, and it speaks to our approach about how when you see on the ECG, on the interpretation, that there's more than one criteria positive, it's it's more serious. And then we've got this science backing it up, you know, specifically for the criteria that we've, we've selected in our program. And then strain, especially, is a pretty big deal. And anytime you've got that statement, LBH with repolarization abnormality, it's not good for you. And um, they have the worst outcomes. There was a paper published by uh, Victor Prolicker uh, at, um, uh, I I believe it was the VA hospital, I think out of Palo Alto, California. He looked at outcomes because they were, uh, and this was probably 20 years ago, but he looked at just what our program said, what the 12 Cell Program said. Whatever that statement was, the statement that had the, the poorest outcome, the greatest prediction of death was LVH with repolarization abnormality. Yeah, that that's a just a, a known predictor of all cause mortality. Um, and then other other publications showing it. In um, congestive heart failure and hypertensive patients, and for MI in patients with aortic stenosis. So those are papers that I've I've read, and I, I'm sure that there's others out there.
0: I like that idea that the combination, because you know a lot of people talk about the non-sensitive nature of some of these ECG criteria, but there is something to it. If you have almost additional data points that are adding up to that, and you mentioned additional criteria met, right? The Sokola line, the Cornell product. Maybe the patient has hypertension heart disease, right? Or is an elderly, you know, and these things are tipping you further. Maybe, you know, left bundle branch block is present, which, you know, a lot of people with LVH may also have that. And that's, you know, also probably complicates the criteria used or, you know, prior anterior MI. And so it's like these yeah, things adding sure. up and you mentioned the strain pattern. I like the idea as clinicians, it's more of just, you know, using the computer for what it's meant to, right? And I think using the good parts of it where the measurements giving you uh, some extra data points to support your clinical decision-making. So let's close here because I think there's a lot and I like I mentioned, that left bundle branch block and some of these other patterns that can complicate matters, uh, and I don't want to overextend my time because I'm truly grateful for it. Now, the detection of left ventricular hypertrophy is important given its clinical consequences and therapies available today. Computerized ECG detection of LVH, or left ventricular hypertrophy, has evolved over the years to even aid in risk prediction, and we saw it today. It is exciting to see the advances made in the future that lies ahead in the field of electrocardiology. Dr. Farrell, thank you for sharing your insights into computerized ECG analysis detection of LVH. This is such an important topic. You're clearly an expert, you're a leader in the industry, and on behalf of our team, thank you for taking time out of your day to join us. It's been a true pleasure.
1: Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Cashew. It's been been uh, an honor to have a chance to, to be here and speak to this audience.
0: Thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast at cveducation.mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to a Mayo Clinic cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in every other week to explore today's most pressing electrocardiography topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic.